listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Good morning. We're the Pinkstons. I'm Jim. I'm Jill. And I'm Jack. The scripture reading today is Isaiah 49, 8-18. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They, they all gather. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. This is the word of the Lord. So a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, my, my phone rang. My dad was calling uh, to say, hey, I've just gotten my second COVID vaccine shot. Your mom's gotten hers. Can we come visit? Because it had been over a, a year since we've seen my parents. Um, you know, we, we didn't go home last Christmas. They're both medical workers. They're both in their 60s, so like super old and vulnerable. And so we didn't want to... <laughs> put them at risk, no, no offense, uh, we didn't want to put them at risk, we didn't want to accidentally get something that maybe they brought home from work, and so we didn't go home for Thanksgiving, we didn't go home for Christmas, we celebrated, you know, birthdays and anniversaries over Zoom, which is just another way of saying we didn't celebrate them at all. Uh, we hadn't seen them, and so their base, I mean, Dad basically said, he's like, look, now that we're relatively safe from this thing, all we want is to see our family, is to have, like, to get our kids back together. We just want to get everyone, and then my mom said, no, I just want to see the grandkids. <laughs> Definitely, primarily, mostly, completely, they want to see the grandkids. <laughs> I mean, and, and what about you? I mean, I, I know a lot of us are feeling the same after this year of forced exile, after, you know, a year in which our love for one another has kept us apart instead of bringing us together. You want to see your kids. You want your family to be around you, to be back together. We want that family regathering where we can, you know, put too many people in one house and cook meals together and play games together and hug and, and put your hand on someone's shoulder and, and sit on the couch next to each other and sing and play and tease and laugh. And if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that we have a a primal, a deep and primal need to be close to the people we love. So imagine our year of forced exile and multiply it by 
70. That's the people that Isaiah is writing to. As a church, we've been reading through Isaiah, especially focusing in on the 40s, chapter 40 through 49, looking for the heart of God for weary people. Because Isaiah, writing before the exile, is writing for people about to go into exile and also writing for people in exile to reread his words while they're experiencing it and to see in their weariness God's heart for them, his comfort for them, his consolation for them. So as he looks forward to this exile to come, he's anticipating this community scattered to the four corners of the earth will want to be back together, regathered, reunited with their friends, their family, back home in their homeland. But he goes on to make a further point, even greater than their desire to be back together is God's desire, like a parent's, to have his family home. I mean, even more than you with your family or me with mine, no time apart or distance separated can suppress God's desire to bring his children home to get his family together. So Isaiah knew that people in the exiled community would, would need to draw comfort from an undisputable and undeniable fundamental fact about God. He has not forgotten his children because God cannot forget his children. So, if you're writing anything down, write that down. That's the key idea this morning, or the main thing I'm going to come back to over and over again. God cannot forget his children. He can't. Uh, so, turn with me, Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 18. Um, and as we read this passage, we're, we're going to see how God's active remembering of his children uh, shows his heart for weary people. All right, let's jump in. Verse 8, and a lot has happened between chapter 46, where we were last week, and chapter 49, where we pick it up today. Uh, mostly it's about how God is going to use the nation of Babylon to send his people into exile, but in the end, he's going to bring his people back together, and he's going to do it through the work, through the ministry of a servant. Servant with a capital S. You might remember this servant back when we were exploring chapter 42, we heard God saying, help is on the way. I am sending a servant to rescue you. This is the same person, another, this, this, another instance in which God is talking about and to the servant. And where we pick it up in verse 8, God is speaking directly to this servant. Thus says the Lord, and now he's talking to the servant. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Meaning, God says, on, on the day I chose, on the day of my favor, on the day of salvation, I will help you, servant, to do what I'm calling you to do, which is spelled out in the rest of verse 9. I will keep you, so protect you, and give you as a covenant to the people. 
give you as a covenant, when this language showed up in chapter 42, we understood that to mean give you as a covenant mediator, the one who would stand between God and humankind, pointing humanity to God in worship and pointing God to humanity in rescue. But more than just be the person in between, he would be the one who, who actually brings the two parties together. The one who decisively and once and forever repairs the broken relationship between God and humanity. The one who provides the opportunity for each and every individual, every one of us to experience for ourselves that relationship repairing power that we call reconciliation between ourselves and God. So the servant going to be given as a covenant mediator in order to, the end of verse 8 says, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, to say to the prisoners, come out, and to say to those who are in darkness, appear. Because part of God's renewal plan for the world, part of, of putting things back right involves renewing Israel's relationship with the land that God blessed them with. Their land, which during the exile is lying desolate and in ruin, has to be repopulated. The, the family land grants, the, the property given to the tribes and families as they came into the land has to be reapportioned, reallocated. And prisoners in darkness political prisoners, economic prisoners, those who have been put into prison as a way of oppressing them, uh, will be called out of their darkness, called out of their chains, given back what they were meant to have in the first place. Because part of remembering your children is, is bringing them back together, putting the family back together where it belongs, restoring the way things are supposed to be. It, it, in this first verse and a half, where. We're reading God getting ready for the family reunion, getting ready for his children to come home. He's cleaning house. He's sprucing it up, making room, getting ready. Because God cannot forget his children and wants to bring them back together. And not just metaphorically, right? This isn't some sort of like spiritualized regathering. The people of, of God, the children of Israel, can't remain scattered, but say that they're, well, we're all together in spirit. I mean, you experience Christmas over Zoom like that. You know, you know what it's like. It's better to be together. So the servant is going to lead the people, lead the children of God back home. It's his job he has to do before he can reestablish Israel in her homeland. He has to get everyone from there to here, from wherever they are to where they're supposed to be. Uh, and that's all spelled out in verses 9 through 12, poetically, of course, but uh, using, and, 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 uh, using allusions to the Exodus story, you know, that last time that God led his people en masse out of bondage into the land that he promised to bless them with. And so he gives almost a repeat of the promises from the Exodus story, verse 9. Uh, he'll give them what they need. They, all of the prisoners, the people coming home, shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor, nor sun shall strike them. And there's a number of promises of provision in these verses. Feed along the ways. 
You don't often consider a roadside or the side of a trail to be the best place to get food when there isn't a McDonald's at every rest stop. Uh, you know, when there's raspberry bushes on the side of the trail, if you're not the first one there, they've been picked over. People uh, who have been forced to march these roads into exile would know coming back, it's not likely that they're going to find what they need along the way to survive this journey. But God says, no, you'll feed all along the way. There's just going to be food in abundance. And for your animals, all the bare heights shall be their pasture. Bare usually means there's nothing there worth eating for an animal, but it's going to be your pasture land, rich with grass and water. He promises them protection as he goes on from internal failures of strength. They shall not hunger or thirst. From external threats, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. You can make this journey. Forced into exile, I will bring you home. And it's not just a you know, disembodied, transcendent, out there, not really connected leader because verse 10 tells us, he who has pity on them will lead them. That's the servant. He who has pity on them or mercy on them, compassion on them, love for them. The servant himself will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Guide them so, so effectively, verse 11, that you know, seemingly insurmountable mountains will be leveled into a road. The highways shall be raised up the things you thought would block you will no longer be an obstacle. Uh, the road, you know, carved out of the terrain by hoof and by foot will be lifted up, built up with stones, paved and made into a, a, a level and safe and permanent and impossible to miss and easy to follow road back home. You don't have to worry about directions. You don't have to worry about provision. Just follow the servant and you'll come home. And it doesn't matter how far you have to come. Verse 12, behold, these, this group shall come from afar, and behold, this other group from the north and from the west, and, and this, these from the land of Syene, from the other direction. No threat, no obstacle, no uncertainty, no need, no distance, no location will be so far, so difficult, so insurmountable as to prevent God from regathering his children from bringing his family home. Because God cannot forget his children. When he brings them back home, his act in bringing them home is so extraordinary that even the earth, the, the heavens, the, the mountains themselves, verse 13 says, sing for joy and break into singing a song of how God has comforted his people, and had compassion on the afflicted. Because God cannot, will not forget his children. He will bring his family back together. But even in the midst of this song of praise in verse 13, Jerusalem, Zion, uh, interrupts with a reality check. Imagine a whole congregation of people singing praise to God for what he has done, but one person is in the corner saying, but the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. 
Zion, Jerusalem personified as a woman, as, as a mother in this passage, is saying, okay, you're reapportioning the land, you're, you're putting people back, but, but what about me? What about the capital, the symbol of this entire country? What, a, what about me? Why, why do I have to feel forsaken and forgotten? And that may be where a lot of us are today. Sure, God, you're doing great things over there in her life or over there in, in his life, but what, what about here? What about in my life? When will I get to sing for joy for what you have done in my life? Why do I have to be the one who feels forsaken and forgotten? But God never leaves his people in that state of feeling forgotten. He either says, like we explored last week, he says, even when you feel forgotten or forsaken, I am with you. I am never not carrying you. Or he remembers, which means he actively puts himself into the story and changes the circumstances, which, which is what he's about to do here. Verse 15, Zion has said, the mother of of Israel has said, well, God has forgotten me, and God jumps in. He says, look, rhetorical question, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? In other words, look at, look at a mother and her child. Look at that indissoluble bond there. Can a mother forget her child? No, it's unthinkable. Though in, in our world, of course, it does, it happens, and it shouldn't, but it does, and it's a tragedy when, when a parent and forgets to care for the child. God says, look, even, even these may forget, even these mothers may forget, yet I will not forget you. He says, my compassion isn't subject to forgetting my care for you isn't subject to frailty or to forsaking. My attachment to you is as strong as the attachment between a mother and her child. Stronger, even. He says, I don't forget my children. I can't. Look, he, he, he goes on to say in, in verse 16, he says, I can't forget you. Look, I, I, have, I have written you on the palms of my hands. Not as a reminder, as if you needed to, oh yes, I forgot about him. Not as a reminder, but written on the palms of our hands as a memorial that is now constantly before us. That constantly before me, God says, I, I can't forget you. I've written you on the palms of my hands. Your, your walls are continually before me, meaning, meaning I, I see you. I see your shape. I see your form. I, I see your brokenness. I see what has been done to you, Zion. I see you. So in verse 17, he begins to deliver on his promise. It says, your builders make haste, probably better translated, your children make haste. If you want to ask me why, we can talk about the Hebrew later. But your children make haste to come in, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out 
from you. In other words, there's this great exchange happening where the children are coming home and everyone who had dispossessed them of the land, of the city, who had plundered it for all it was worth, they are fleeing. They're going out the back door because the children are coming home. The family is coming back together. And so God calls Zion to look. Verse 18, lift up your eyes around and see. They are all gathering. All of your children are coming home. They all come to you. Your family is coming back together, he tells her, like, like a, a mother who can't forget her children, as far flung as they now are, Jerusalem's wish is coming true. The kids are coming home. And not one to shy away from mixing metaphors, God moves from a motherhood metaphor to a bridal one. The end of verse 18, as I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament you shall bind them on as a, as a bride does, her jewels on her wedding day. I'm guessing most of you have a family photo or two like the ones that we have in our house where you get the grandparents sitting in the middle and all of their kids and spouses are kind of arrayed around them and the grandkids are in front in front of the grandparents, or just a little bit off to the side so you can still see grandma and grandpa front and center, and grandma is holding her first great-grandchild. You have these photos where grandma and grandpa are adorned with their family like a bride is adorned with her jewels. They're ornamented by their kids, by their family. And I have never seen uh, my grandparents, or my parents, or my wife's parents or her grandparents more happy and content than when all of their children and all of their grandchildren are home. And even more content when they leave and they've cleaned the house afterwards. But still, they would, wouldn't trade all that cleaning for anything. They, they just want their family with them. So God says, look up, your, your kids are coming home. Your family is, is regathering. They're, they're about to surround you and overwhelm you with their love and with their presence. In fact, he, he goes on to say in, in the verses that we don't have time to read, he says, look, kids are gonna come home that you didn't even know you had. There's gonna be so many kids, we're gonna have to build an addition onto this house to make room for your family. Because God cannot forget his children. He's leaving none out. All are coming home in this great family regathering. This is God's promise to the people of Israel in the midst of their exile. You are my children. You're my children. I, I can't forget you. Even though some in the exile had to be thinking, God, it's been 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. God, it's been 60 years. How long are you going to keep on forgetting us? How long before you do remember us? Okay, fine, you never forget your children, but you've forgotten us, so what does that mean? And I think some of us are feeling the same way, whether it's just been over this last year or the entirety of your life. You've said, okay, God, you don't forget your children, but you've forgotten me. So what does that mean? but God doesn't forget 
his children. Ever. Except once. Once he forgot his own child, his own son. Once, when his son Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he was dying in our place for our sins, Jesus cried out in the words of one of the songs that they would sing in the synagogue in Israel, a song that we call Psalm 22. He cried out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? You don't forget your children. Because in that moment, that moment when Jesus was taking on himself the full weight of our rebellion, of our sinfulness, of our walking away from being the created children of God, when he was carrying all of that on himself, Jesus was taking the forgetting and the forsaking so that we would be the remembered. Jesus took the, the, the forgetting so that we could take the remembering. He took the exile so that we could come home as children. More than any other writer in the New Testament, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' first and youngest followers, more than any other writer, he was overwhelmed by the idea that anyone, no matter who they were born, Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter, could become a child of God through Jesus. In, in the first few verses of his gospel, his record of the story of Jesus' life, he, he writes in his big introduction, Jesus came to his own, and his own people, that is the, the children of God, the Jews, Israel, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the power to become children of God. And then later, near the end of his life, as he's writing a letter to a, a small church, and in the very act of the writing, in describing the love of God, he becomes overwhelmed by it himself and writes, look, look, behold, in 1 John 3, see what kind of out-of-this-world love this is that God, the Father, has given to us that he would call us the children of God. And not just call us children, but make us children. That is what we are. He says, we are children of God. So what that means for us is if we have received Jesus, which John describes as believing in his name, then we are children of God. Just as much children of God as the Israelites that Isaiah is writing to in their own weariness and wondering, where is God? Has he forgotten me? If we have received Jesus, if we have come to God and cast ourselves completely on his mercy through Christ, if we've come to him and, and said, I, I have nothing to give to you, nothing to make me worthy of you, nothing to barter with, nothing to make a deal over. All I'm bringing to you is my brokenness and my selfishness and my sinfulness, God, and I need you through Jesus to wipe it all away. If we can overcome our own pride and desire to make ourselves acceptable and lovable and come to God and say, I, I'm the one at fault here. I'm the sinner. But your son died in my place. Then we too become 
children of God, and the same comfort that comes to uh, the Israelites in Isaiah 49 comes to us. Because as children of God, we know God cannot forget his children. If you are a child of God, God cannot forget you. How could he? His, your name is written on his hands. My wife and I, we have one, one child, one daughter, Anna. Um, but we've had, we've had others. Uh, many of you know. We've had others. We've been pregnant multiple times, and it's always ended in a, a miscarriage. Uh, we got tired of putting pictures on a wall uh, of sonograms after a while, so to, to make it permanent, we decided to um, write our children on our hands. So we both have these tattoos. This is for the last child that we lost, uh, little infant feet tattoos the same size as, as the child that we lost uh, early in the second trimester. We are both now forever marked by the children that we have had and have and have loved. And you can't forget that. You can't forget your children. God can't forget his children. Our response then, our role then, is, is to be children. Not, not try to be the, the parent who tells God where to take us or where we should go or to tell, us, tell him what to do that makes sense. When I was younger, I could not understand why my parents would leave and why, why they would sell and force us to leave this house that I loved with a huge basement that had tons of room for toys and a garage that my dad had built that I could climb up in the top of and friends next door. Why would you make us move to the complete other side of town? It didn't make any sense except they were having more kids and I didn't know it. When you're a kid, sometimes the stuff your parents do doesn't make sense. When you're a child, you don't understand what your mother and your father are doing, but if you know them, you know their character, and you know who they are, and you know how they make decisions, then you know whether you understand what they're doing or not. You can trust what they're doing. Our God cannot forget his children, even when it feels as if sometimes he has forgotten us or forsaken us or let us go our own way, he will one day gather his children home. All those who have received Jesus, who have believed in his name and who are his children will come home for the great family regathering at the end of the age. God cannot forget his children. He promises us. He cannot forget you. You are his. So he will bring you home. Let's pray. Father, sometimes you describe us as wandering sheep. Other times as rebellious children, sometimes as just ignorant in the way we wander away from you, fight against you, 
that don't even know you. What a sense of comfort we can derive from, from knowing that even when we forget you, you do not forget us. That when we feel like we have been forgotten or forsaken for so long, or even just recently as, as we look back at our lives and wonder where you are, we, we know that you cannot forget us. You will not forget us. Because through your Son, our names are written on your hands. Give us the comfort in our affliction that we long for in knowing and living your remembrance. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.